Okay, we're going to read from Mark 7. I want to read to you the account at the end of this chapter of Jesus healing a deaf and mute man. So picking up in verse 31, it says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, I believe in this miracle, as often is the case in many of the miracles, we have here a picture that it reflects to us or depicts for us the very heart of the mission of Jesus Christ and what he's doing. Now, just to set some context here, some of you who've been tracking with us through Mark's gospel will recall that Jesus has been to this very place before, this area called the Decapolis. It's where he healed a man who was uh, afflicted by a legion of demons And the result was the death of thousands of pigs on the hillside, if you recall. And it's not a a Jewish area. There are Jews who live there, but it's mainly a Gentile area, an area that's dominated by non-Jews. Hence the the pig farming that was going on. And in, in response to what Jesus had done there, and the extraordinary power of God that had been revealed, but also the loss of the livelihood of those Um, herdsmen, the locals had begged Jesus to leave, if you remember. So the last time Jesus was here, they'd essentially closed the door to him and said, we don't want to listen to you anymore. We don't want you in our region. We don't want you hurting our animals. We don't want you here. And uh, here we are, sometime later, we don't know how much time has passed between then and now, and Jesus is again in this same area, but something has happened Now, do you remember when Jesus healed the man, um, the man had begged Jesus, can I please be one of your disciples? And Jesus said, no. He said, go and tell everyone what God has done for you. Go and tell your friends. Go and tell your family. Because they'd known him as this this essentially lunatic man who lived uh, with no clothes on a hillside, tearing his own flesh apart. And God had so transformed his life. The very same thing we've seen happen In many people's lives over the years, if you've been walking with the Lord, you know how he can deliver people from very dark places. And Jesus charged him. He said, go back and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And it seems that his missionary work as a healed man has reaped dividends because suddenly the locals are no longer afraid of Jesus in the way that they were. And they want to know more about him. And so they're bringing to him, as they do here, this deaf man, for Jesus to come and do it again. Come and bring healing. And it reminds me of those moments we're reading through uh, the Narnia books with our kids. And there are moments when there are just rumors of Aslan sort of on the breeze, as it were, whispers being passed from person to person. You know, Aslan is on the move. 
And I think there was that kind of atmosphere within this region, this Gentile region, that somebody extraordinary has come among us. And there's this openness. Their hearts were closed to him, and now they're wide open. And in a sense, what Jesus does in this individual, when he heals him of his deafness, when he releases his tongue, is a picture of what he's doing in the entire region. But much more than that, it carries incredible freight and significance for what God wants to do and is doing in your life. How is that so? Well, when you're reading the miracles of Jesus, they work on two levels. They work at a first level merely as demonstrations. I say merely, but it's an extraordinarily important thing. They work as demonstrations of his power and nature. One of the things that compels us to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God was the reality of the miracle power of God revealed through his life, testified by eyewitnesses, written in the Gospels, and ultimately culminating in his resurrection from the dead. If it were not for these things, we wouldn't believe in Jesus. The miracles work at that level. But they also work at another level. When you're reading these miracles, these standalone events of the works and the power of Christ in individuals' lives, what you are seeing is some aspect of what Christ is unveiling about himself or what he intends to do in the world. So, For example, as I've said before, when he stills the storms on the lake, he's not only showing that he's the Lord of nature, but he's showing that he's the Lord in your own life, isn't he? When he feeds the 5,000, multiplying bread and fish, he's not only showing that he is uh, able to perform such an incredible feat, a creative miracle, But he's also showing that he is our provider, that he wants to feed us, that he wants to nurture us and nourish us, and that we can rely upon him for that purpose. So when we come across a miracle like this one, you should by now understand that it is loaded with significance, that Christ wants to speak to you in your situation and teach you about the work that he's going to be doing in your life. I think that we need to understand this then actually in the context of the entire Bible. So will you turn to Genesis 1 verse 1? I'm only kidding. We're not going to do that. But you have to understand it in the context of the entire Bible, understand the works and the power of God. Sometimes that we can only get understanding to a moment in Scripture when we zoom back. It's like doing the Google Earth thing when you zoom out and out and out until you can see the entire picture. And then you can come back in and understand the context of what's going on here. And we're going to be doing that. We'll do a little bit of heavy lifting to begin with in terms of just understanding the power of God at work in history. And I want you to keep your Bibles open and work with me to understand what we're talking about here before it comes to the the point at which we can understand, well, this is what God is doing in our lives. It applies then very generally. And we see this miracle, this is what God is doing in the world, as you'll see. But it also applies to you. And this is what we need to be alert to today. This miracle speaks to us about what God is doing in your life. And the great question, of course, then is, are you listening? Are you listening in this moment to the power of God's voice at work in your life? Are your ears open, your spiritual ears open to the Lord? So as I said to you, I want to stand back and, and think about the context of this miracle because it isn't, it isn't just a one-off random miracle. It stands within the storyline of Scripture as something which signals a profoundly important reality about Jesus and what he comes to do. And it speaks to us primarily about as a way of summarizing what God's salvation is at its very heart, at the core of its nature, what it is that God is doing in the world and what it is he's doing in 
in his people. Now, let's understand this then. The Bible is a story of God's salvation. It's a story of God coming in, invading history to rescue individuals and nations. And the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the very same Scriptures that Jesus had read growing up, that he was steeped in, immersed in, that he understood, are a, are a story, an account of the ways and works of the Father at work in his people. It says in the New Testament, when Paul's talking about the Old Testament, it says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. He says, the reason the Bible exists is to help you so that you can understand the answers to the question, what is God like and how does he work and what does he do? But also so that you can understand your own heart. The Bible tells so many accounts of the flawed response of mankind to the work of God, doesn't it? And when you read it, you recognize yourself as in a mirror. You say, this is what I'm like. I respond to God in these same ways. I have the same tendency to rebellion, the same tendency to turn away from God. I have the same hopelessness or unbelief or whatever it is that we're reading about in the scriptures. So when we go back to the pages of the Old Testament and we begin to understand what God is doing, here's the question I want you to ask. What kind of salvation is it that God had affected in the Old Testament in and through primarily just one people group, which was the Israelites, the Jews. What was it that God was doing? And how can you characterize the kind of work that he was doing? And I want you to understand the answer is this. That God was giving them, uniquely among all the peoples on the face of the earth, he was giving them the ability to hear. I get this from places like this in Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy is in many ways a recapitulation of the law of God and God's heart and desire for his people to keep the law. And there's these extraordinary words in Deuteronomy 4 verse 32. It says, for us now of the days that are past, remember, God has just delivered them from Egypt. He says, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. You're thinking, what? What is the great thing? What is the awesome thing that has never happened in the history of the world except for us? And he says, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? He's saying what distinguishes you, the people of God, from everyone else on the face of the planet is that you have heard God speak. Goes on a little bit later in that passage. He says, Out of heaven, he lets you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. In other words, that he might instruct and shape you and turn you into the people that he wanted you to be. Now, this answers a great many questions about Christians and what it is that we ought to prioritize and also explains our obsessions. What is it that that marks us out, marks Christianity as being different from every, every other faith in the world. And there are a number of ways you can approach an answer to that question. But you think about what characterizes other religions. Often they can be characterized by religious experience. Of course, that is a dimension within Christianity. We do experience God, don't we? But actually, I don't think the experience, as, you, as is often sought within other faiths, is the primary thing. Nor is it a kind of religious practice. Some, some religions are marked by a very defined set of practices. If you do this, then you are one of us. 
Christianity isn't particularly marked by those things. What is it then that, that is at the heart of our faith that distinguishes us? And I, one of the answers is, well, we have a book. We don't know anything about God except because he's spoken to us through it. And we treasure it. And we count it the greatest privilege imaginable that God has disclosed who he is to us in his word and that our ears have been opened to that voice. There's a psalm, the psalm, that 19th psalm, which kind of expounds this idea. The great reformers in the 1500s used to talk about how there are two books, actually. There's the book of nature, and the psalm opens in that way. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, it is not, God is never silent. He is always speaking and preaching himself to all, through all of creation to those who will hear it. But then it goes on. And talks about this other book. It says the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. Bringing the soul to life. Speaking life to your, most, your innermost being. It says the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. He sets you on a sure path. You didn't know how to live. You didn't know what life was about. And then God's testimony puts you on a sure path. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And it ends this psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. It ends in this way. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist has an understanding of what it is that God wants in us. He says, God, you're speaking everywhere around me. You preach your glory, your majesty, and your power through nature, but also you've spoken to us through your word, and it's the greatest privilege that we should hear you. Now he says, let my heart be consumed with these things. Let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He asks the question, what is it that God has been doing in history? How does he save people? And the answer is, he gives them hearing. Then you can ask this question. What, would, what does faithfulness, devotion, and godliness then look like in the life of the believer? If God is a speaking God and he wants people to hear him and he gives the gift of hearing, what does it mean then to be a godly person? And the answer that Deuteronomy then gives us is that you are somebody who is listening, who's attending to God's word. It goes on in the next chapters and This keeps being reiterated. It says things like this. It says, Moses summoned all Israel, Deuteronomy 5, and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And over in chapter 6, it says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. People who love God are people listening to God, is what he's saying. People who delight in the Lord are people who, who meditate and chew on and find comfort and food and life-changing power in the fact that he has spoken, that he continues to speak. That's what it means 
to be a believer and to be saved, the word of God is in you and you can hear. God then explains the instructions to then teach these things to your children. He goes on in Deuteronomy 6. We want to raise up a generation to be those who listen to God. Because when they hear him, the voices, the clamoring voices of the world around us seem much less appealing and much less interesting because you've heard the voice of the living God speak out of the fire. What happens then throughout Israel's history? Well, the Old Testament is in many ways an account or a story of them going through seasons of listening and seasons of not listening to God. One of the most depressing books of the Bible is the book of Judges because it is so full of the sinfulness of man. And one of the things that keeps being reiterated throughout the book, it's a line that gets repeated, is that each man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, he refused to listen to God and instead decided, I know, I know what's right and wrong. I'm going to live my way. You think what has happened in our culture as a result of so many of the great shifts that have happened intellectually and to relativism and the, the idea that morality is only relative and that, that we are a law unto ourselves essentially is that basically we're seeing the book of Judges being, being relived in our own day. Each man does what is right in his own eyes. But then there are other moments in scripture where it works the other way. One of my favorite moments in the Bible is in the book of Ezra. If you know the story, sorry, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is called by God to come and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Having been, you know, God's people have been deaf to him for a long time. They haven't been interested in what God has to say, and God, as a result, abandons them and they go into exile. But there's hope. They come back. They come back to Jerusalem. They start rebuilding their city. And part of that is a spiritual renewal that happens in their hearts. It's not just a physical restoration of the favor of God in their lives in external ways. It's also God reviving their spirits to want to listen to him again. And one of the most powerful moments is in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 when it says that the priest Ezra brought out the scrolls, the Old Testament Hebrew scrolls, the law of God, and he begins reading them out to the thousands that are gathered in the town square. They stand for hours listening to him. And as he's reading, he's got a succession of teachers, uh, teachers all around him who hear and explain it to the, the section of the crowd that they're, to, they're, they're preaching to. And they tirelessly work through the law of God. And it says, it says the ears, listen, we're talking about hearing today. It says the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Suddenly they're, they're, they're alert again. And they're listening again. They haven't been listening for a long time. Suddenly they are. And it says, the result of them listening, it says, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When God speaks, awe settles in the heart. When you hear the voice of God, you have a sense that somebody who could destroy you with a word is speaking. Since he is also the one who gave life to you with the word. And their heads fall down. And they begin to worship. It's not that they need a worship leader even. It's a work of the Holy Spirit among them. It's beautiful. And so moved are they. So convicted of their having abandoned the law of God to this point. 
they begin to weep as well. Heaving tears of sadness and grief that even though they're the most privileged people on the planet, they weren't listening to the God who'd saved them. Nehemiah has to chastise him. He says, today's not a day for weeping. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He could see the good side. God was saving them before his very eyes. God was awakening them. This is revival when God's people start listening to God again. Not thinking that they know how to live without his word and his instruction and his teaching and his power. But as I said, there were these cycles of rebellion all the way through the Old Testament. Deafness, deafness came upon them as a people. But even then, you start to read the prophets and they're lamenting this deafness. But they're also whispering, promising, predicting a moment in the future when people would start listening to God again. It's all the way, especially through the book of Isaiah. Saying this is what revival will look like when God's people start to love the Lord again. They'll start listening again. They'll be attentive again. I love these words in Isaiah 30. I'm going to read you a couple of passages. Isaiah 30, it says from verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And he exalts himself to show mercy to you. God God loves to be kind to his people even when they've been rebellious, rebellious against him. Because he says the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He'll surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, he says, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. He's predicting a time when somebody who would come would be called the teacher. And when his arrival, people will start listening to God again. We get the same sense in Isaiah 32 in the first four verses. It says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. You're meant to read that and think, well, who is he? A king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. He's saying there will come a time when there'll be a king, and under his rule, eyes open, ears open, hearts, treasure, the tongues are free to speak again about the things of God. Now, I think with all of that understanding, you can have another look at this story in Mark 7. You have to remember the beginning of this chapter. Jesus has stepped into the very situation of deafness, which Isaiah was speaking about and preaching about throughout his whole ministry. And Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah earlier in chapter 7, when it said in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He's saying you're just as deaf as your ancestors were. You don't listen to me anymore. You don't listen to the Father. 
You're in that situation of absolute deafness. And you've got to know, by the way, that before Jesus came, the last prophet who spoke and who'd written down words that had become scripture, that were scripture, was Malachi, who'd been 400 years before the, the, the coming of Jesus. There was 400 years of God's silence. God's people were not listening. And God would not speak. But that same chapter in Isaiah, that very same chapter in Isaiah 29 where Jesus is just quoted from, begins to talk about a change, a shift, a spiritual shift that would take place. It says in verse 17, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon... By the way, this area where Jesus is preaching in Tyre and Sidon is in Lebanon. Until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. And in that day the deaf shall hear the word of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. You've been deaf to me for centuries. But he says, something's going to happen. God's people are going to start listening to him again. So too in Isaiah 35, a little bit further on, we get the same sense of what's happening. It says in verse 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Hear that. He says, Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's very interesting, by the way, where Isaiah uses that word mute. It only occurs twice in the entire scripture in the Greek versions. It's there in Isaiah 35, which is speaking about this awakening of of the deafness coming to an end, ears being unstopped, and then the mute being able to speak. And it's here in Mark chapter 7. What I'm trying to put before you is this. That when Isaiah spoke about a teacher coming, a king in righteousness, through whom people will regain the ability to hear God, and speak. When Isaiah was talking about that one coming, he was talking about these moments in the book of Mark. When Jesus will start opening up ears. Remember how often Jesus says in the Gospels, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, This is what I'm for. I'm speaking. I am the revelation of God in flesh for those who will hear. If you have ears to hear, then hear. So what I'm trying to help you understand is in this small, seemingly insignificant miracle with Mark 7, we have a microcosm of the entire mission of God in the world through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean for you? Let me tell you a few things. It means that this miracle is a picture of your salvation. Of what God has do, done or is doing or will do in your life. You, without Christ, were the deaf mute. You may have thought yourself particularly intelligent. Particularly philosophical. Particularly wise. Particularly capable and able to get along in life. But the Bible says you are none of those things. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He says, as smart as humans think they are, we have great gifts that God has put upon us and given to us. He says, doesn't matter how smart you are, unless God moves in your heart, opens your ears, opens your heart, you don't get it. You don't understand the power of God or what he wants to do in your life. And that was you without Christ. That may be you right now. You were deaf. But when you believed, Jesus opened your ears, didn't he? You heard something like you'd never heard before and you began to understand it in a way like you didn't understand before. Suddenly, the light of God penetrated your cold heart. Here's another way I can speak about it. This miracle, it shows us what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and it shows it to you on a couple of levels. The first is that to be a Christian is to have the gift of hearing. I love how Jesus talks about his own voice going out to his people in John chapter 10, but he says that some hear and some don't. He talks about himself as the shepherd of the sheep. He says the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. If I walked into a random field of sheep and started shouting out, they'd run away from me, wouldn't they? Because I'm not their shepherd. But he's saying when the voice of Jesus speaks to the people who he has called, they hear the voice and they respond. He says a bit further on, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I think it means that our relationship with God is a little bit like penguins. You ever learn anything about um, the great emperor penguins that live in great flocks of thousands upon thousands? And it's quite an ordeal uh, living as a penguin, I imagine. Not only you can't walk very well and very, very cold areas to live in. And anyway, these penguins live in these great crowds and they huddle together into tight bunch. And uh, you know the male and the female penguins, take, they take turns to, to, to take care of the young, the, the chicks. And they, they, they kind of marry each other, penguins do. They kind of join each other for life. And when, uh, when, in order to feed the chick and feed one another, one of the penguins, the male or the female, will, will trek, 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 far across the ice flats to the sea. Go and go fishing and eat all the fish and then come back and trek all the way back with the purpose of regurgitating the fish into the mouth of their spouse and their chick, which is just delightful and not, not to be, not to be uh, reenacted in any way. But um, this is how, how, how it works. It's what it means to be a penguin. But you think when they return home, what's happened in that great crowd of penguins is everyone's moved. If you watch a kind of time lapse of the, of the crowd of penguins, the ones on the outside lean in with their heads buried down into the crowd, but they're freezing cold because they've got the wind on their backs. So gradually they shuffle. They're always shuffling on their feet to get to the middle of the crowd and always is a kind of a, a rotating thing, which means that they don't nest anywhere in particular. So you imagine how, as a penguin, when you're returning back to a great crowd of penguins and they all look exactly the same, don't they? There's no distinction one from another. They all look exactly the same. How on earth do they find their partner. And the answer is, they have vocalizations. They all sound the same to us. 
but their ears are tuned to hear the vocalization of their partner penguin. And their voice warbles at two frequencies. And as it warbles, and there's a kind of Morse code communication that, that is being, uh, being elicited through their, vo- vocal, their vocalizations. And as they do it, the spouse hears, and they find their way eventually to the, to the partner penguin. It's, an, it's a miracle of nature, of what God has done. The heavens declare the glory of God, don't they? Now, at the risk of something approaching blasphemy, I suppose what I'm trying to say to you is that we are like penguins and God is like the penguin as well. And we're, we're, As God speaks, what it means to be a Christian is that you, you resonate with his voice because he's opened your ears. And you care what he has to say. When the book of Acts happens and this miracle of God opening ears begins to explode into the world, the book of Acts being the history of the early church, do you remember the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit falls on the church and Peter interprets it and quotes from the book of Joel and says that in the last days, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what's the result? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. In other words, God was restoring hearing. And God's on the move. People begin to hear again. They've been deaf for centuries. God says, there's not going to be a deaf one among them. The mark of being a Christian, the Holy Spirit has moved in your life and you now have the ability to hear God. How do you hear him? In Scripture, and by His Spirit. In other words, a spiritual person is someone who is then attuned to the voice of God. You, you want to know what He's saying. Another thing, another dimension of this, of course, is speech. Remember in the miracle, this man is not only deaf, but he's also mute. He cannot speak, and Jesus releases his tongue, it tells us, and he begins to speak. Now, the odd thing about what happens then is that Jesus then says, don't speak. Don't tell anyone what's just happened. It must be the most, it's the most unrealistic command that Jesus ever uttered, right? Because what's the first thing that happens? They all just go around speaking about this incredible thing they've just seen. And I'm sure the deaf-mute man is is chief among them. Because when people have heard God, their heart is so filled with the awe of who he is that speech is irrepressible. Think again to what happens in the day of Pentecost. Not only do they become prophets, everyone among them, hearing the voice of God, but they all start speaking in tongues as well. They all start speaking about how awesome God is. This is the result of hearing. Your tongue gets loosened. And it tells us when the crowds are watching them on that day, what is it that they're speaking about? The crowds say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In other words, they're all worshiping. And God loosened their tongues. It's because their hearts, their spirits, their souls were filled with delight in who God is. And they cannot help but worship you ever had that experience among God's people where you may have come cold into a worship environment but somehow the spirit of God is at work among us and suddenly you can't help but sing and not just sing but sing at the top of your lungs your tongue's loosened 
to speak the greatness of God. Let me bring this home to a final point. This, then, this miracle, I think, teaches us what our calling is. In other words, it's not just about what God has and is done, has done in you. I think that's the primary thing always. But the scriptures call us to cooperate with the work of God, don't they? So as God is saving us, we, we, we work with God in cooperating with the work of his spirit in our lives so that we work out our salvation, Paul puts it, with fear and trembling. You see how wonderful it is when people are working out their salvation, when they're cooperating with God. Now what would it mean in this situation to cooperate with the work of God in your life? It means if God has given you the gift of hearing, which is what it means to be a Christian, I'm telling you, then listen. The great uh, warning of Scripture, what I've been trying to help you to see, the great warning is that you can lose your hearing. You can become deaf to God. Sometimes it's called becoming hard-hearted, but it's the same thing. You say, well, how does that happen? It happens when you, when you deliberately start trampling upon the word of God, when you become disobedient to God in a very deliberate and unrepentant way. And eventually you become unable to hear God speak at all when that's you. But instead, what I'm trying to exhort you to is becoming attentive to the voice of God. You're a Christian, now listen. It's an amazing thing when your kids are small. I particularly noticed this with, with uh, Seth. He began to listen to the world around him. And because he had a particular interest in any kind of vehicle, and any flying vehicle especially, he was attuned to the sound of planes and helicopters. Now, where we live, we're, you know, we're in London. We all live under the Heathrow flight path, don't we? So hundreds of planes are flying over every day. And we have all the media helicopters hovering around near where we live. And all that's going on. And you just begin to tune it out. You don't listen anymore. It's not, it's not there. It's part of the background hum. Because your, your mind, part of maturity, is learning to focus on the things that matter. But our minds filter out all the nonsense that's happening around us. And, but, but Seth had just learned what a plane was. And he could just about say plane and cop for helicopter. And w- every day, we'd, he'd suddenly, he'd suddenly like, his eyes would light up and he'd be sat at dinner eating his, his food and he'd suddenly go, cop, 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 cop. And we'd be like, what is he talking about? There's a helicopter outside and he's exactly right because he was attuned to the particular sounds that were around him. And I think in a way, that's a picture of what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who's been given the gift of hearing And now you are sensitive to the voice of God. You want to know what he's saying. You feast on his word, of course, and you are walking, as the scriptures say, in step with the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul puts it in Galatians 5. I think what I'm trying to help you to understand is that being a spiritual person is listening. The other way we can think of this then is that if God has given you the miraculous gift of speech, then speak. Why did God give speech to his people? 
We saw it through the, 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 the stories that I was telling you. How in Deuteronomy, God says, hear and then teach it to your children. How in Nehemiah, God's people heard the law and then they began, began weeping and praying and bowing down in worship to God. Why has God given us hearing? It's in order that we then might be able to speak about him. And God's given you a tongue. Our tongues can be abused. They can be misused. James talks about this. He says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He says, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. God's put a spring in your mouth to gush forth. And the calling of the scriptures is to turn off the tap of all the the evil that would spring from our mouths and to unleash the praises of God. It's one of the marks of what a Christian looks like. His heart is consumed with God and it has to come out of the mouth. Didn't Jesus say it? That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You, you could know being around one another for any length of time whether a person loves Jesus or not. Just watch how they speak about him. Watch how they worship. Watch how you worship. Worship and missions, the purposes for which God has given us speech, are intimately linked together. John Piper famously said that uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. And in many ways, as we, missions is just the overflow of worship as we tell the world the awesome deeds of God. And then we summon other people, join with us in the worship of this great God. I love how it's put in 1 Peter 2, where he says that you, and he'd he'd open the letter talking about all these distinct scattered peoples, you were all just from different people groups, just like us in this room, but he says now, this is you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Why did God pluck us from different parts of the world, from different backgrounds, from being no people to becoming a people, Peter tells us, so that you would become worshipers, so that your tongues would be released and loosened to speak about the greatness of God. Now, as I close, I just want to remind you that Jesus is the only one who has ever had perfect hearing and perfect speech. And there's a psalm, Psalm 40, which talks about Jesus. It talks about him before he came in a prophetic way. And the the book of Hebrews tells us this psalm is about Jesus. And it talks about this gift of hearing and this gift of speech which Jesus has. I want to read you these verses in Psalm 40, verse 6. It says, uh, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted. In other words, uh, God, you don't care about dead religion. You don't care about fakers who come into your, your house pretending to worship you. Which is what Jesus was confronted with when he said, You're all hypocrites. All of you. He says, That's not what delights you, God. It's not our outer actions which are the pretense of worship. 
But he says, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I love that word. It says, you've given me an open ear. It literally in the Hebrew says, ears you have dug for me. It's like God had molded this man. And then he'd, the final finishing piece was that he dug out ear holes for him. It says Jesus, Jesus is saying, that's how you made me. You don't care about all this pretense. You made me a man who would listen. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. What is the result of listening? He says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Here we have in Christ. Because you and I know that our hearing is imperfect at the best of times. Here we have a Savior who listened to the Lord, to his Father, and never wavered from doing his will. We have a righteous one who is our Savior. And then it talks about his tongue. It says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Thank you, God, for Jesus, who didn't only listen to you, Lord, but obeyed you and then began to declare to the world your great love. And friends, as believers in Jesus, God cannot demand of us the perfection that we cannot attain. Christ alone attained that perfection. He alone lived the righteous life on your behalf. He alone had an ear that was tuned to the voice of the Father. He alone had a tongue which never spoke anything but that would give praise to God. But in his preaching, he awakens you. In his declaration of the love of God, you feel the love of God. I want to ask you, are you hearing God speak to you? It may be the case that you are not a believer in Jesus, but you have been somehow inexplicably drawn to his voice. I don't want to frighten you, but that means God is digging ears in your head. You can choose how you respond to that. We can silence the voice of God or we can start listening. Is God speaking to you? He wants you to know of his great love for you. He wants you to know of his son who has made it possible for you to be forgiven by his death on the cross. As Christians, are you hearing God's invitation to deeper obedience? Because you can see it, can't you? The way I've explained things today. When there's disobedience in your life, you know that you are walking in deafness. That even though you've heard God, Maybe years ago, maybe decades ago, even though maybe once upon a time you were responsive to the word of God, as hardness may have set in, as unwillingness to repent of the things that you're doing, you're becoming aware today, this is a great contradiction in my faith. I've been privileged, I I can't unsee the things I've seen. I can't unhear the voice of Christ that I've heard. It's not like I can pretend he's not the Lord of all things. Because he's, he's given me the gift of hearing. But you're not listening. How do you need to repent? 
What do you need to do today to respond to the voice of Jesus in your life? Are you sensing God's command to begin speaking? Christ has not given you the gift of hearing so that you could become the Dead Sea, where all the waters go in and never come out. He's given you the gift of hearing so that you can become a spring of fresh water. So you can gush forth the praise of God, tell of his goodness. What is God speaking to you today? I want us to bow our heads. I want to lead you in prayer. And I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine in a couple of moments. And I encourage us to sit. To sit with this word. To sit with the reality of what God is doing in our lives. You may have become like a broken guitar string. Or a guitar string that is, that is out of tune. God wants to tune you up again today so that you'll resonate with his voice at the right frequency. Unrepentance in our lives does damage to our ability to listen. But when God is speaking as he is right now in this moment, we have opportunity, don't we? Jesus, speak. Jesus, open hearts. Loosen tongues. Loosen our tongues to speak of your greatness. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine. and I want us to remain in the quiet. To respond to, the God very, to God very personally before we gather our spirits to worship en masse. I believe in even these quiet moments, the Holy Spirit can speak to us. Tell us where there's bitterness we need to release. Tell us where there's anger we need to repent of. Tell us where there's licentiousness and, and lust that we need to be forgiven of and repent from and turn away from. Tell us where we're not attending to God, we're not listening to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the speaking God. You spoke creation into being and you've spoken your word into our lives, bringing life from the dead. Lord Jesus, just as you marched onto the scene and declared that you're the great teacher, the king in righteousness who would open ears and loosen tongues, we ask for that great miracle in our church. We ask for it in this city. We ask for it, Lord God, that you'll bring revival. But Lord, we know that revival always begins with your people, as in the book of Nehemiah, bowing their heads in awe and worship because they hear you again, they've not been listening. Revive our spirits, revive our souls. Teach us to listen to you, O oh God.